This is NBR's Live from the Hive, a compilation of the week's top stories straight out of the beehive. Do you have something to add? Head over to nbr.co.nz and join the discussion. The government has lauded its deal with BlackRock, setting up a new fund to invest in renewable energy projects. But details of the deal are sketchy. I'm joined by NBR's political editor, Brent Edwards. Brent, what do we know about this deal already? Well, kind of what we know is that BlackRock is setting up this $2 billion fund where it'll get investors to put money in, um, coming from, you know, looking at New Zealand institutional investors, um, KiwiSaver funds, but also clearly it's likely to bring in um, international investment. Um, but just how it's, I mean, you look at it, it's kind of a deal between the government and BlackRock, so it looks like a public-private partnership, but the, but the government's not putting any money into it, apart from the expectation that its crown entities, like the New Zealand Superannuation Fund and ACC, will invest money into this fund. And given, I think, both have looked at issues like climate change and are investing in those sorts of areas, it's likely that they would, without any pressure coming on them, if you like, from from central government to do so. Um, but, you know, there's no talk, I've asked, there's no payment being made either way, any sort of fees, that I'm told. But, but yeah, but it's been pretty, just but the fund's been set up, it's, the way it's put is the government has gone out really and wooed BlackRock to come here to do this. Um, from BlackRock's perspective, it seems to argue that it looks at New Zealand and it can see that there's a whole lot of things happening in the climate change space. Therefore, it sees a commercial opportunity. And, and it's been, despite the fact that it invests heavily in fossil fuels and has for years, it has been investing in um, climate change or green investments for some time now. And it's trying, obviously, to build that portfolio uh, I think, you know, some questions asked whether it was greenwashing. It says not. The government seems still confident about its involvement. And did we need to involve the likes of BlackRock to get this stuff funded? Could we have done that ourselves or through other means? Well, you know, people will argue that, you know, the government could um, raise a lot of debt, borrow a lot of money to get this stuff done. Um, But clearly it does make it easier if you've got to look at other financing sources to sort of trade, raise the sort of money to invest in renewable electricity projects with the aim of getting New Zealand to that target of 100% renewable electricity. So I guess the talk is that's $42 billion needed. Um, Energy Minister Megan Wood said about $26 billion is already kind of committed. It's the other $16 billion that they're kind of searching around for. And so that's the possibility. But the other point that, that she made, that Megan Wood's made, was that also... Um, with BlackRock's international connections, supply chains and what have you, that it should make it easier to access the assets, the material that you need, you know, if you're talking about wind farms, that sort of thing. So that, that that's the other advantage from the government. It's not just the money that BlackRock will bring to the table in terms of attracting investors, but also those contacts in terms of sourcing the material needed for the, the different sorts of um, you know, renewable electricity projects, whether it's wind farms, solar or whatever. So apart from being potentially part of BlackRock's greenwashing efforts, if, if, you know, if that is one criticism, what are the other downsides to New Zealand of being part of this? Well, 
you know, some of the critics have raised the, the issue of um, BlackRock's um, past and, you know, it's now under some sort of investigation around investing in some Chinese companies. Um, so I know the Prime Minister, Chris Hipkins, said he had confidence in BlackRock and that that was a matter for the United States government, those issues. So there's, there's that sense, but, you know, I guess if any government is going to engage, as, as all most governments do with large corporates, you could argue that they will all have some sort of um, perhaps dirty laundry that, you know, you might have a look at. I mean, I think one of the ironic things about this has been that um, the government, from the government's perspective, it's always been very, very sceptical about public-private partnerships and private sector investment involvement, say, in transport infrastructure, but it's gone out of its way to get this big, big multinational to come here on energy. Um, you've got the ACT Party that's been put out a statement, um, ACT Party leader David Seymour, criticising this deal without even naming it or naming BlackRock, but basically because he wanted, didn't agree with the whole idea of going 100% renewable, whereas you thought the ACT Party might have actually welcomed big private sector involvement. And then Greenpeace, um, obviously welcoming the government's commitment to 100% renewable, but again, not liking the involvement of... So all of these different groups, government, ACT, Greenpeace, whatever, they, they all seem to be shifting around on this ground. It's quite ironic about the different approaches they've taken to this particular issue. Yeah. And just finally, why isn't there more information coming out about this? And is there an expectation that there will be more information about it as time goes on? Well, A, it, it might be that that's all it is, there is to it. I mean, people are saying, what is the deal? What are all of the conditions, etc.? Maybe that's just it, that actually the government's just kept on chasing after BlackRock, said, we want you to come here, set this fund up, and, you know, obviously set the parameters. We're very keen as a government to go to net zero. We're doing all this stuff. We're, um, you know, bringing in fast-track processing and stuff so we can try and get these um, projects um, through the process quicker and all of that. And from BlackRock's perspective, it sees a commercial opportunity. I mean, that might be it. I don't know. Uh, but... I mean, I've made a request for all of the documents, the reports, advice, correspondence around this, um, and we'll see what that shows, although I suspect much of it might be redacted because it's of a commercial nature, so it may not tell us everything we need to know. That's right. Uh, thanks so much, Brent. NBR are offering a free trial to newcomers. See what all the fuss is about on our flagship website, nbr.co.nz. Ron Mark is putting his political experience to work in the Wairarapa and helping to front foot amalgamation, writes Bridget Morton in her column this week. And Bridget, it's not just his love of cowboy boots that's got you uh, being a bit admiring of what Ron Mark's up to. Uh, just ex explain a wee bit about what he's trying to do in his area of Carterton. Yeah, so he's now the mayor for Carterton and he's joined with two other local mayors and basically started a process of not necessarily agreeing to amalgamation of the three councils, but being pragmatic about the fact that they're all small councils and need to take some practical steps. So shared services, where they can, um, you know, have similar or the same planning um, restrictions, all of that kind of stuff, so that they can actually make some efficiencies and decrease the cost for their ratepayers. So he's kind of jumping in ahead about what may be forced down the throats of some of these smaller councils. This is what you're arguing. Yeah, so the Future for Local Government report came out 
um, about a month or so ago. And this was a process of review that was started under the former Minister for Local Government, Nanaya Mahuta, that kind of has gone a bit quiet, I think, particularly because of Three Waters controversy. But basically that report, one of the key recommendations out of that, is taking away these 67 councils we have now and bringing them down to be much smaller, based, they recommend, on the boundaries that are in the RMA replacement bills. So you'd end up with about 15. Now, of course, not everyone agrees to those particular boundaries, but it does make a good case for that some of our small councils could be more efficient, more effective if they were sort of joined up with some of their neighbours. Yeah, but Ron Mark, being quite smart politically, given his background, you know, he, he's not going the whole hog and, uh, you know, he's sort of amalgamating the services and so forth. And and does this sort of avoid some of the trouble that we've seen with Three Waters and, and the unpopularity of it? Yeah, I think it definitely does. And you saw, to be fair, just ahead of the Three Waters, a few councils making memories around the fact that they also wanted to work together in a similar way. But the problem was that that was really ignored by uh, the central government, basically, and they just enforce this mandatory three waters, which you know councils and ratepayers really reacted strongly to. So I think what's happening here in terms of Ron Mark is that he's not just sort of going about this process, but he's being really public about it too, probably pretty conscious that the Minister for Local Government um, is the local MP in that area as well, and saying, hey, we can do this by ourselves if you give us the opportunity. It makes it much harder for them to come over the top on them. How much bipartisan agreement do you think there is on the issues that local government is facing? I think there's quite a lot of agreement on the particular issues. And you can see already some of the agreement of the recommendations. The key one is the Ministry um, for Local Government. Both big parties have said that's not something they're particularly interested in, but they have pushed the rest of it to post-election. And that's probably a good thing in terms of having a bipartisan approach because it takes the politics a little bit out of it and allows them to seriously look at all the factors. You know, rates are going up exponentially. We're getting more and more pressure on councils. What can we do to actually make sure that they're effective? It's, it's not going to work for all councils, though, is it, this kind of softly, softly approach to amalgamation? Because some of them are just so small. Yeah, some of them are really small. Some of them are in a lot of trouble. So, you know, your neighbours don't want to take on your problems. So they're going to not find, you know, local friends to, you know, that um, Ron Mark has managed to. So I think that's a key issue. But also I think a number of councils as well, they are really, you know, they feel like they're unique communities. They want to be themselves and they may see that as more important than some of those efficiencies that can be achieved. Bridget Morton, thanks for joining us. Thanks. Beehive banter in a week of recess. So no MPs in the House, but where they are is everywhere. Announcing policy, knocking on doors, chasing your vote faster than a kilo of butter melting on an Athens sidewalk. And that's pretty quick. And we've had a new phase, aspirational policies, like Labor's new Auckland road tunnels, bus lanes, walking and cycling paths, and light rail announcements that comes at a cost of, uh, oh, well, 35, 45 billion, although as we all know, that'll be out by billions. Brent, why had Acting Transport Minister David Parker already ordered Waka Kotahi to speed up work to protect the route and acquire land they don't already have? Isn't that a bit arrogant, just sort of weeks out from the election? Two things. He's no longer Acting Transport Minister. He is Transport Minister. But yes. aside from that... <laughs> I, guess you, I don't know who's doing what anymore. <laughs> um, you know, Chris Hipkins, the Prime Minister, makes the point the government still has to govern. Um, acquiring the land 
arrogant. I, I think whatever happens, that land probably will be used for some sort of transport um, corridor, whoever is in government. Um, well, not the light rail, maybe. Not, not the light rail, maybe, but, I mean, they've already got a lot of land anyway. So not, there's not, you know, I don't know that there's a huge amount still to go. But, I mean, you know, they've got to carry on with their plans, I mean, I suppose, rather than... Yeah, but, but to, to, to order them to do it now... Just this this far away from the election. Well, if it was a year out, I'd understand it. Yeah, yeah, but a before the election, it's not <laughs> likely that they're going to buy any land anyway. Well, no, because uh, what could I have come back and said probably not. Well, but the fact you know, that he told start, them to start the process, but in yeah. terms of any sales going through. But again, I think for any future government, probably having that land will be useful in terms of the options available to future yeah, governments yeah. about what they do with transport. It just seemed links, arrogant. Whether it's roads, light rail. Heavy rail or what? Arrogant. Um, is it also, besides being arrogant, a stunning backtrack from the Adurn government that basically said, car bad, train bus good? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not so sure because it was never clear that they wouldn't, you know, the Adurn government wouldn't have built road tunnels. I think they would have as part of the, the second crossing in terms of, because that, and that's always been a part of the options. Like, I guess the, the bigger question is, is it is it the best option? And I've you know seen some people with expertise in transport and infrastructure who are critical of it. Um, so, you know that that's the big question: Have they picked the best option for Auckland's future? And that, You'll never see the light of day. That's still open to debate. Maybe this particular plan might see the light of day, but obviously a second harbour crossing will see the light of day and in some form. In some form. I mean, mm. I mean, one thing is you got to think: is surely people need to get a hit, get their heads together, the government. You know, Auckland Council and others, and agree on something because otherwise, we'll be talking about well, we, well, you and I might not be, but 10, 20 years from now, still talking about Auckland's troubled transport. Well, links. the current mayor doesn't like this plan. No, he doesn't. And, he's and without argued, him, he's saying, well, yeah, and, and, he was, and uh, the Greens don't like this plan. They call, in fact, they call no. it bonkers and grossly irresponsible. Yeah, well, not many people seem to like the plan. Um, opposition parties don't <laughs> like the plan. No. So, I. Now, it will be interesting. Obviously, if there's a change of government, that particular plan will be parked yes, up. right. Speaking of dreaming, Green Party want free dental care, and so do I. But industry leaders are saying it will take 10 years to implement, all paid for by a wealth tax. Again, dreaming, aren't they? Um, what, well, this is actually going to give the Greens any new votes. It possibly could because there is a lot of people, you know, who cannot afford to go to. But won't a they be voting for Greens anyway? Maybe. Well, maybe, maybe not. And the question is that might. But if it gets them more votes, ten, but, but ten if it gets it more votes, it's probably going to take votes off Labor. But this has been an issue for years and years. People have talked about it. I mean, it, it, it really reflects the disingenuous nature of how we talk about the public health system. Because we, we talk about the public health system, governments do, as though it's a free public health system. Yeah, but not and about it, and teeth. It, and it's not, because teeth are excluded. Yeah. And we know that so many people avoid going to the dentist because they can't afford it. Then that leads actually to other health problems yeah. as well. So, you know... I'm not saying it's not a good policy, but ten years, it's going to take 10 years to implement. It's the dreaming. Well, what do you do? Not implement a policy because it's going to take a while to implement and therefore you keep it dragging on and on and on with people getting poor service, not being able to afford to go to a dentist? I know. I've spent thousands on my head. Thousands. I know. Smile. I mean, no, obviously it's, smile. it's been I'm worth it. I'm not, they I'm not happy with them. Now, <laughs> speaking of green things, a new overseas $2 billion 
dollar BlackRock Green Fund for projects that will still, Brent, presumably, have to go through overseas investment regulations and they have to be consented? Um, they will have to go through those overseas investment rules if if the large part of the investment is overseas investment, yep. but part of it too is to try and attract institutional investors in New Zealand, such as the New Zealand Superannuation Fund, ACC, but also private um, KiwiSaver funds and what have you. So if there are some investments that are much more domestic, you know, they might avoid the overseas investment rules. But yes, they'll have to go through planning processes as well. The government's pointed out, though, that it's put into its RMA reform bill, the Natural and Built Environments the Bill. The one that's doing so that, well and that, not holding things up. That will fast track renewable energy, <sighs> which they say, and you know, speeds up the process by about 18 months. You can't imagine that BlackRock have agreed to set this fund up without some sense of the fact that there's going to be money to be made yeah, in it for them. Return. And that in that sense that they can see that the, the, the regulatory obstacles are not so great that it doesn't make it worthwhile to make the investment. Well, I mean, $2 billion, What are they worth? $2 trillion, did I read? Yeah, yeah. $2 but trillion? The $2 billion is they're going to get from investors. It's not going to be their money. They're going to be no. the fund manager. But the idea is that that $2 billion fund, it's $2 billion fund being set up now, that it would grow yeah, to well, bigger look, it, than that. It doesn't sound, I know $2 billion initially sounds an awful lot, yeah. but it's not really, is it? No, it's, it's not a lot, but it's in a start. But the idea is it will get bigger. Well, it, well, won't, well. it won't just stay at $2 billion. All right. Um, now, Dreamtime, uh, it continues. <laughs> With national, no phones in schools, Brent. The PM saying schools already have the power. They don't need Christopher Luxon's permission. Now, let me ask you this then. If that is the case, then why aren't they using it? Well, a number of schools... Because the reports are all out saying if you ban the phones, mm. learning goes up. Well, a number of schools have um, how taken, many? taken steps. I don't know off the top of my head, Grant. I'll tell you how many. How many? Not a lot. Well, not a lot, but a number of schools have, but they do have the ability to do it. And it then and they why are, aren't they? Well, the question is, is up to the schools about how they manage this. It's not such well, a... they're obviously not it, managing it. It's not as easy a step, I think, as Christopher Luxon has made out, and he's kind of whacked principals who might not do well, it. Well, why isn't it? You they, just turn around and say, you can't yeah. bring your phones in, it starts now. What does it mean, what does it mean for earpods, earbuds, um Well, you, what, smart, you can put your earbud in, but you won't be connecting to anything. Smart, um, you know, watches... Well, iPads. Have a, just have a watch that, that tells the time. Well, yeah, but... <laughs> so, I mean, one of the things is, <laughs> I, I think all a lot of schools are taking steps to manage the use of cell phones or and or to stop their use during school hours. Does it need to be centrally directed from Wellington? And that's one of the unusual things about this because National generally... Well, is, everything else is Na directed from here. I know, but that's it. National says that's wrong and it's pushing a localism, <laughs> that sort of local control. And But on this position, they're wanting to impose essentially controlled push on the way schools would deal with the issue. Finally, you ask... How do we I, I, I want to add one thing. I'm not but finally, the, the, sorry. Sorry, the amusing thing is all these parents, though, <laughs> have been complaining that they won't be able to ring up their little Johnny or Jenny when they're at school. And I'm thinking, well, my kids before, you know, going back a few years, didn't have years. cell phones, so you couldn't years. ring. But why the hell would you want to ring your kids up at school? To work out what time you're going to pick them up with your horse and cart. <laughs> to give them a ride home. Finally, you ask, how how do we pay for all this? And the teacher's pay increase that's just gone through, and the nurse's pay increase from a few weeks back. I'll tell you how. Act. The Act Party. Because they're saying they're going to stop work on wasteful projects on day one. Day one. They want a billion in savings, including if you work for IMBI, get ready for redundancy. Of course, if Labor win, no savings. Which can only mean one thing, Brent. They'll need more money. And where will they get that from? 
Well, they'll need more money, but, I mean, the finance minister... From where? Well, they'll hopefully get it from, I suppose, increase in taxes. The economy grows, but at the moment... But I thought there wasn't going to be any increase in taxes. Well, not an increase in tax paid because the economy's growing, but at the moment the economy obviously is stalling, which is meaning the tax take is dropping below forecast, not dropping... I mean, but Grant Robertson says they're still looking for savings. Interesting um, policy from ACT. They'll sack half the staff... So was that 3,000? 3,000 people. They have no idea... Well, the Reserve Bank will be happy. They have no idea what the redundancy costs will be. I mean, so it's a reflection of a lot of policy that's being released by all parties, a lack of detail about what it means and how it will be paid for. Well, there's a lot of lack of detail in a lot of policies, don't you think? There is. Um, I mean, look... We, I don't know about you, but we got more policy announcements in the last week than you've got hairs on your head. That's not hard to do. No. What's and more, your, and what, more to what, come. What's your point? And more to come. That's yeah. po- policy's well, not here. Well, we've got an election looming, and the one thing I'll but say... But they're silly policies now. I, I know, but the one thing where I'll, I'll, I'll express a little bit of sympathy for the political parties, OK? This is, you know, perhaps the first note, but... There's a lot of public pressure on them to release policies, particularly from the news media. And when parties aren't releasing policies all virtually every day or what have you, the media attack them for not having any new ideas. So they're pushed into this, as you put it, the silly season of policy releases and often meaning that they put out policies that are yeah, quite aspirational but lack a real detail about or how fact, they'll be put in place. Any detail. Yeah, or Go any. back a few weeks to Calvin Davis when they were talking about, you know, Knew this and knew that, and they asked him for detail. And he went, oh, I haven't got any. Yeah. Why? Oh, because I wrote it down obviously half an hour ago. Well, that's just anyway more silliness over <laughs> over the next week. Uh, I would think, um, and maybe just maybe, do you think we might get that long-awaited Labor tax policy? Yeah, maybe. Um, the oh, Prime, Minister, keep, like the the Prime Minister. Minister keeps on saying in the next few weeks and the next no, few... No, he said that a few weeks ago. I know, I know. I was just about to say, Grant, the next few weeks is pretty much up. Keep so, your hair on. So, you know, we'll wait and see. <laughs> All right. Appreciate it. Thank you, Brent. And as usual, we appreciate you taking the time to watch or listen. Thank you. Like what you're hearing? Join the discussion with our member subscribers at our website, nbr.co.nz. New Zealand First says more needs to be done to expand the aquaculture industry. I'm joined by the party's Northland candidate, Shane Jones. So what exactly needs to be done to expand the industry? I think we've got to step back because we've got a fundamental question to ask, Brent. Are we going to exploit this emerging industry as a major source of export earnings, knowing that the market is ripe for uh, utilisation. And if that's the case, we need a level of certainty, cost efficiency, so that people who are willing to invest in the sector step up to the plate and are willing to put their capital at risk. I can tell you, mate, as the former CEO, of, uh, former chair of CEO, uh, of Sea Lords, rather, and various other fishing interests, very hard now to convince people to put capital into aquaculture. And it's very well to have strategies and policies, but it's obvious through the failure of the Ngaitahu application down at Stewart Island that there's either too much risk aversion or the process itself is so constipated 
the commissioners can't with any confidence allocate a consent. And therein, in all honesty, mate, to me, therein lies the conundrum. We can have all the flash words we want of growing the economy, but if your regulatory thicket is so dense that people don't get out the other end, why would you waste your capital? So the the regulations then need to be, it needs to be made easier in terms of the re- regulatory burden that's placed on these these projects? Yeah, well, obviously there's the apocalyptic story of King Salmon trying to um, make a go of it down there uh, in the Marlborough area, and they were defeated because the Supreme Court assigned a higher level of environmental significance to aesthetic values. So this is what I say, we've got to step back and the new government has to say, right, we need to dig ourselves out of the debt. Obviously, come September, when the uh, pre-election fiscal situation is uh, unveiled, we're going to see that we just cannot afford to take these, what I call elitist positions, that people associate higher value with aesthetic considerations and wilderness values in the back of nowhere down on the Stewart Island. Meanwhile, we're losing our young families to Australia, and we are not able to make up the slack with new income of an export character unless we can boost these new industries. So we need a statutory process that is designed purely to grow the economy. And in my view, and this is something that I've pushed for a long time, and obviously we were unsuccessful getting it through when we were in government for uh, up to 2020, but politicians themselves should be entitled to make these calls and then an expert panel can work to uh, attach various conditions and whatnot so that we don't uh, lurch too far. But if politicians want to grow the economy, find other sources of income and diversify our export revenue, then they, they, in my view, should use the election as a mandate to do that. So in terms of then, you know, say the establishment of seafood farms, salmon farming, that kind of thing, um, would you have any environmental standards or what? How would you kind of balance that to ensure they would, could go ahead? I mean, would would you say that there should be no environmental protections? No, obviously there has to be environmental standards, but they have to be weighed. And there should be a preponderance and a weighting given to boosting our economic revenue from exports because we have a very serious fiscal situation in New Zealand. I mean, what is the fiscal purpose of maintaining these areas around Stewart Island, which very few people will ever get to visit? They become a playground of the elites. And then all the working class and middle class kids and families who are trying to get ahead on 70K to 100K decide to decamp because they are not the new jobs, the new industries, or the new opportunities coming forward. As far as I'm concerned, the country's got more than enough wilderness. There's only 5 million of us, and we're the size of Tokyo, we're the size of uh, Japan and the UK. This is the reset that I'm talking about. Look, obviously, I'm not saying that we negate all environmental considerations, but the notion that wilderness values uh, to the but that, that might be compromised by 500 hectares to 2,000 hectares in the middle of nowhere down Stewart Island makes number one no sense. And I think it represents what's actually crept around New Zealand, which is an anti-growth ideology. I mean, would it would, it, would it be a good idea, if, if you like, for the areas that are open to um, aquaculture to be identified and cleared for that, and then that would allow firms to come in and make their bids to use that rather than each time a company 
or in this case NITAR, who are having to make an application for an area um, of ocean to, to do so? Yeah, I, I want to be really lucid here. The, oppor the, the opportunity goes right back to Peter Hodson and um, Helen Clark. Peter Hodson put a prohibition against um, aquaculture because of the Klondike effect. Now, I know I'm going back in history, but I am telling you the truth. And then Helen Clark uh, initiated a body of work where the iwi were able to designate and circumscribe certain areas around the coast that would be dedicated aquaculture areas. Those areas should be, as of right, available for fish farming as of right for aquaculture. Now, after having circumscribed them, that will then incentivize people to take the risk, either grow shellfish or grow fish. The notion that every single time an investor or uh, an enterprising group of companies, irrespective of whatever their background, whether they're iwi or kiwi, I really don't care about that. But we've got to simplify the process that if you're occupying that particular part of the coastline, we should have passed legislation, bang. I mean, obviously there'll be OSH considerations and maritime safety considerations, but the notion that you have to spend millions every time you decide to take a risk, I just think is too much of a disincentive. And it, quite frankly, it makes a lie of the narrative and um, the language we deploy too often in New Zealand that we want to grow our economy, we want to have clean, sustainable jobs, we want to boost our economic revenue through exports, then some poor soul decides to go through um, the valley of death, otherwise known as the RMA, and they lose all their money and they never get out the other end. So if New Zealand First is part of the next government, that's going to be one of the key priorities to, to, to yeah, push Yeah, New Zealand First campaigned in 2020 on um, a dedicated aquaculture policy, a $100 million fund was going to be put aside to help de-risk these enterprises. And uh, more importantly, a dedicated statutory process that does not snag, does not condemn applicants to this uncertain outcome currently um, bedeviling Waitahu. We stood on that platform in 2020, and we've recently discussed and um, pushed this through in terms of our own uh, recent convention and all of those, the, the full detail will soon be released by our leader, Winston Peters. In the government strategy, it, it talks about aquaculture being a $3 billion export revenue sector by 2035. Do you have a view on just how big the sector can grow? So Doug Kidd, who you and I may remember, had a figure of $2 billion dollars in about 93, 94, 95. And uh, we're nigh on 30, 30 years later, and we're talking about um, a $3 billion figure. The only way that that figure will be realized is with a tailor-made bespoke statutory process, number one. Number two, by attracting capital into that area, but deciding as a government or indeed as a nation this is a strategic development which will boost the productivity and the earnings internationally of the country. Therefore, we are doing it. Shane Jones, thank you for your time. Kia ora. And that's been this week's Live from the Hive. Thanks for listening.